Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Couch Talk with your host Jeffrey Todd and your co-host Wyatt Otto. Welcome back to the second season of Couch Talk. Uh, I know there's not a lot to really talk about sports, sports-wise right now because of the current situation that is going on in today's world. I'm sure everyone is very, very aware of it. Uh, but we definitely thought we could still have episodes, and we thought there was stuff to talk about, and we thought there was a way to entertain people, even though there aren't sports on right now. We have yeah. a we have a pretty interesting episode, I think, for you guys, and uh, I'll let Jeffrey tell you a little more about it. Yeah, so we've got uh, actually our first interview today with author Corey McCartney. He wrote the book uh, Tales from Atlanta Braves Dugout. It's a book basically full of stories about the Braves, and he spent time working for Fox Sports, and he still does a lot of work with the Braves, so, you know, I'm not going to steal all the excitement, so without any further ado, here's Mr. Corey McCartney. So, thank you for being here today with us, Corey. Uh, you know, as we get started, why don't you tell everybody out there a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure, yeah, so, uh, I've been covering the Braves, uh, you know, since uh, 2012, I uh, originally was with Fox Sports South, uh, was there for about seven and a half years now, doing some stuff from Talking Chop. I'll have some national outlets I'll be doing uh, stuff for as well when the season gets going, but before that was at Sports Illustrated. And um, yeah, I wrote a book about the Braves, Tales from the Atlanta Braves Dugout, uh, came out in 2016, did an updated version of it uh, that actually just came out uh, last month. Awesome. Yeah, well, it's a great book. And uh, for those people who haven't really checked it out yet, why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, What's the book about? Where'd you get the inspiration from? That sort of stuff. Sure. So it, it actually is a series of books that uh, the publisher, uh, Sports Publishing, uh, did. Uh, some Skyhorse Publishing. And uh, when I was covering the team, uh, I was a couple years into the beat. And they reached out to me and said, you know, hey, we do these uh, these series. And they're kind of loose-ended where you can kind of make it whatever you want. Uh, but, you know, kind of want it to have... You know, chapters about different things to do with the team, uh, either through the, the path of it or you can pick out however you want to handle it. So uh, I, I kind of went into it with the idea that I was going to do this book because there was another book I wanted to write and th- they would have first writer of refusal on it. When I was at Sports Illustrated, I was trying to write a book about the Heisman Trophy and I was working with a literary agent and we were going through the process of going to publishers. And I uh, had my youngest son and things kind of just derailed and, you know, day job uh, at SI kind of t- overtook things. Uh, so I knew if I wrote this Braves book, I'd be able to write the book that I really wanted to write. Uh, but it's funny, this Braves book has just uh, become a, a really big thing that I'm proud of, especially this next version of it that just came out. Um, you know, you kind of decided I was going to take people through the history of the team when they arrived to Atlanta uh, in 1966. Bill Bartholomew, who just uh, actually died last week. I was the guy responsible for bringing them to Atlanta. So it kind of took people through all the major points, uh, the major people that, that were really uh, key in, in building up this organization and, and getting it to the point it is today. So uh, where did you get all of the the stories from? Because it, some of them you weren't there for. and uh, So where were your sources for those stories? Sure. Uh, so a lot of them, you know, you kind of, you know about things around them, right? So then I, I obviously wasn't alive or there the night that, that Hank Aaron uh, had 7.15 to pass Babe Ruth, but um, kind of started out, you know, working uh, with the guy who was the head of uh, public relations for the team at that point and just kind of branched out from there and just tried to pick the brains of as many people as I could who were either around for those events, part of those events, the, you know, the central figures uh, for those events. So that one in particular with uh, – with uh, Hank Aaron and that night, um, you know, Craig Sager, uh, who obviously would later on would, would uh, be 
you know, held in a lot of high regards for his work covering the NBA, his loud outfits and whatnot. He actually unfortunately died of cancer uh, a few years ago. Um, I was able to get with Craig in, in his hospital bed in Houston while he was undergoing cancer treatment and, and got a lot of really neat perspective from him. So it kind of just branched out. You know, you kind of you get your ideas of what you think about a story or what you think happened. And then uh, once you start talking to the people involved, you learn about this little nugget and you branch on to talk to somebody else and it kind of just becomes spider webs out from there. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that uh, that whole little bit about Hank Aaron and Craig and their relationship was really really cool to me. I never even heard about that. So that was cool. And, you know, what was, what do you think your favorite, your favorite one of these stories or little nuggets that you found, which one was most interesting to you? Well, it's kind of changed. Um, the, when I did the first round of it, uh, the thing that I thought was most interesting was what happened to the the home run ball, uh, the home run ball, the final out ball, uh, the night that the Braves clinched mm-hmm. in game six of the 1995 World Series, because uh, Mark Wohlers, uh, who was on the mound for that game, uh, his son and my son play baseball together. Uh, here in Metro Atlanta. So um, I was talking to Mark about it. He didn't even know what happened to that ball, but Marquise Grissom did. So I was able to track that ball. Uh, he actually had promised it uh, to a um, an usher who told him that he was going to make the last out in that game. Um, and it's kind of gone on. I don't want to give away too much, but it's it's kind of gone on a path where um, it's it's hidden right now. Uh, the, the person who has it has, has keeps it in a safe deposit box. But uh, so many of the people involved with that game had no clue where that ball was, what had happened to it. Um, and it kind of unearthed that, um, something I go into great, great detail in that chapter on that. That clinching game uh, was a really cool story to tell. And I think it is the second version of it's come out. Um, it was really the story of Freddie Freeman. And, um, you know, I've been around Freddie basically since, you know, he took off. So, I mean, around, you know, the 2012 season, I started being around Freddie and watching him. I um, mean, you know, I kind of go from this uh, a bit of a wild child, a guy who was known to go out and have a good time to to being this dad <laughs> and this central figure of this team. And it, it, I've never been able to find like a definitive story about Freddie Freeman. Right. Like there's no not really been anybody who, right. you know, has really is really sat down and, and you know, just kind of told about Freddie. So um, I talked to about 14 people around him. Um, and he was phenomenal. I mean, when I, I talked to his high school coach and his high school coach gave me a couple nuggets um, and I kind of just loosely in conversation dropped him on Freddie. And he was like, wait a minute, where did you hear this? And I told him and he was like, we're going to sit down and talk about all this stuff. So he gave me about an hour of his time uh, before a game. And if, if you guys have never been in a major league clubhouse, um, it, it, these guys have a regimented routine that they go through before a game. I mean, they have to go out and get their BP. They do their early work in the field. Um, Freddie pretty much just said, I'm going to give you all this time to talk about this stuff. Really cool. um, we talked a lot about that. His mom, you know, losing his mom at a, at an early, when he was at a young age uh, to skin cancer and how that's uh, impacted him. The, the routine that I know a lot's made about how he uh, how he approaches batting practice, how you're not going to see him hit a lot of home runs. He, he likes to hit the ball over the, the shortstop's head. And a routine that he and his dad did was actually the root of the way he approaches batting practice every day. So um, I, I really felt honored to tell uh, Freddie's story. And I sent a, the, a copy of the book to his dad and his dad texted me. Uh, after he got it, and he said, "I already got the book. I've already read the chapter, and thank you so much uh, for doing this. It, it means a lot to us." So, and that was really cool to, to be able to share that with them. I will say, uh, reading this book for us, that was cool, like the behind-the-scenes Freddie part. But it was really cool to go back and relive some of the like the World Series that we weren't alive for, and going back and seeing the impact it had on Atlanta and what we really missed. We just saw the highlights, but. What it did to Atlanta and all, like what was going on in the clubhouse when it happened, it was a it was a cool angle to see there. 
the another thing, so you were talking about your Heisman book. I'm interested in what you did. So how many Heisman voters are there? Um, I think now there's 929 or something like that. There used to be, so back in the 60s, there was like a couple thousand, uh, and they pared it down uh, after that. That's why up until uh, December when Joe Burrow won, you know, we talked a lot about uh, people who cover the Heisman, talked a lot about O.J. Simpson and the largest margin of victory and the most points in a vote. Um, that was because there were so many voters when O.J. won. That's why guys like Reggie Bush and Troy Smith and Marcus Mariota, huh. who reset all these voting records, couldn't touch oj's record because there were so many voters but they pared it down it's it's around 929 obviously that that grows year by year it also right. grows with, with uh shrinks with the guys who don't turn in their vote or they either die or you know just uh huh. if they skip a year then they don't send them uh, the vote the following year so what is the process i've actually never looked into it to becoming a heisen voter do they pick you do they come to you and ask you for that yeah so i when i was at sports illustrated that was my beat you know i was i was part of the college football coverage team and um, I, I covered the heisman so um the in august we would put out the uh the, the preview issue and it had like a centerfold in the middle of it every year that was about the heisman race and i would write that um centerfold piece and then i would i would cover the award weekly uh, up until december at the ceremony um and i would be at the ceremony covering that so it kind of be i kind of became like obsessed with it and um <laughs> kind of, you know, said, okay, well, there's not really anybody who's really, you know, diving into, okay, what does history tell us about the award and in and, and, and voter, uh, the way voters approach their vote. So I kind of took it on myself to be a, become kind of what I felt was like one of the foremost experts on the Heisman. And after I'd been covering it for about two years at SI, um, the Heisman Trust emailed me and said, you know, we're going to uh, add you to our voters list. So I've been voting uh, since 2008 nine so yeah so 11 11 years now i've been a heisman voter so 11 years been voting how many times have you voted for the winner uh every year but one um and the one year that i did not get it right uh was actually the first year uh and i voted for tim tebow to win it a second time and oddly enough that year is kind of a weird nugget tebow was the first person to receive the most first place votes and not win so um yeah so there was a lot of people in the same boat with me believing that we finally needed to have somebody in line with Archie Griffin as a second uh, two-time winner. But uh, clearly there was enough people out there putting him second that it dropped him down, and Sam Bradford ended up winning. That's interesting. Well, you know, what's gonna what's going on with you in the next couple of months or years? You know, any anything you're working on now, or what's going on? Uh, well, I'm actually writing something completely different. I'm working on a, on a, a fiction, uh, a series of fiction books now, uh, but... Um, you know, doing brave stuff primarily for Talking Chops. So uh, you'll find me there uh, every week. Uh, I'll have content for them. And once the season gets started, that'll expand a little bit more. But, uh, you know, hopefully we, we get a little bit of word here in these coming weeks about when that's actually going to happen. Right. So, you know, we don't really know exactly what's happened to the brave season, obviously. But, you know, looking at this team that we have now, what are, you, what are your insights as to how good this team could be whenever this season starts? I think they could be, uh, you know, another division title winner. Of course, last year we saw a team that wasn't the division title winner uh, in their own division win the World Series. But, um, you know, I think this team is going to be obviously you know, more improved in terms of the bullpen. Uh, you know, the offense is going to be really good. I, I think, you know, there's still going to be some question as to how much they're going to miss Josh Donaldson's bat in that lineup. Mm -hmm. I know they, you know, went out and got Marcelo Zuno with the intent of replacing his production. Um, you know, how much are they as a drop off is there going to be what's what's going to happen at third base with Camargo and Riley. But I think there's enough pitching to get them through, especially if 
what we saw out of uh, Mike Soroka and Freed last year is really uh, just the beginning. And, and if Fulton Evich uh, can kind of maintain some consistency uh, that we didn't see a lot of the time last year. So we've watched a lot of the the Behind the Braves thing, the episode that they're doing on YouTube right now. And mm-hmm. looking at it, Camargo and Riley are they seem that it's not a comp- it's a competition because they want to win, but it's not a competition because they're brothers from everything that I've seen. And there's no hate behind the competition. They want the best man to get the spot, right? Yeah, and yeah. My question is is who do you think is the better fit long term at third b- between those two? Or do they go a completely different route and go find another third baseman? Well, I, I think if I was Alex Anthopoulos, I'd get Chris Bryant, and I right. know that you, he obviously now you know has two years of club control after that uh, after the the arbitration uh, appeal that he had uh, you know in terms of service time. Um, but you know I think between those two, to me, um, you know, and look, I mean, I'll I'll be honest with you guys. Last year uh, when we saw uh, Johan Camargo show up, knowing that Josh Donaldson was in house, he didn't look good at all. I thought he looked really heavy, um, was carrying more weight than we were used to seeing from him, and and he's trimmed down a lot going into this year and certainly with Riley you had questions about his ability to hit some secondary pitches he really struggled against the slider I mean, he had a 43 percent whiff rate last year against the slider so I know that was a major focus for him but when you look when you go back to, to 2018 season and Jose Batista is brought in and then he's given his walking papers and they give Johan Camargo the opportunity to prove that he's an everyday third baseman that season the only guy who had higher uh, defensive runs above average uh, fan uh, graph stat better in the National League than Johan Camargo was Nolan Arenado. So the guy that a lot of people consider, you know, in the National League, kind of the gold standard for third base. So I think from an overall perspective, what you get from at the plate and in the field, I think Camargo is the better player and the better option right now. Uh, but if I were again, if I was Anthopoulos, I'd be trying to add, uh, you know, a, another, uh, you know, unquestioned star uh, to this lineup when you have the assets to do it. Uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll see how this thing plays out. I, one of the issues is you've got to get Riley somehow involved, right? You can't, it, I know that the idea is he needs everyday at bats. I just don't think he's going to get the kind of everyday at bats to improve as a major leaguer in the minors, especially if he's struggling against secondary pitches that are at a major league level. So I, I just, there's just no easy path to getting him at bats. Uh, but I certainly would give the job starting third base job right now to Johan Camargo. Yeah, I think I could agree with that. You know, Johan, he seems to have, he seems to have it, I think. And, you know, you'd mentioned adding Chris Bryant. The, the Braves have done some work this offseason adding starting pitchers with Felix and Cole Hamels, obviously. You know, what, do you, what are your thoughts on what that rotation is going to look like once the season starts? Who's going to be in that four or five spot? I've had a lot of conversations with people about this, and I, I think the layoff really hurts Felix Hernandez because the way things were setting up was like, okay, this guy is a former Cy Young winner. You know, he, he, he struggled to kind of reinvent himself in Seattle and whether or not that was just the fact that he had this legacy in Seattle and kind of in reinventing himself, uh, it was the wrong place to do it. And you just, you know, you, it's hard to get over, you know, kind of what you were in a place like that. And he seemed to have found something that worked for him in Atlanta, but that was kind of all contingent on Cole Hamels not being ready for opening day. And now that we've had this huge layoff, and there's obviously going to be some ramp up period, whether it's two, three weeks, whether we have an abbreviated spring, however they are going to approach this thing. But it was all set up for for Felix Hernandez to be to bridge the gap until Hamels got back in, and then you kind of sort things out. But you know, with this happening and them under real no obligation uh, in, in terms of a contract with uh, Hernandez, I don't know that he's necessarily going to be in the mix. I mean, I think he they probably should, and if they don't, I, I'm assuming some other team's going to leap at the opportunity to get him. Uh, but now the Hamels is potentially could potentially be ready by whatever the new opening day. I, I think that kind of hurts 
Felix's uh, opportunity to squeeze in for one of those spots. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, we've seen some power rankings in the division, and it felt like at the end of the year last year, the Nationals were getting hot at the right time, and clearly they were because they came in and won the World Series. But who do you think, if it isn't the Nationals in the division, who's the biggest threat for the Braves to come back and win the division again? Who was it if it's not the Nationals? Yeah, I mean, I, I, obviously, I, I think the Braves are the best team in this division, but I think the one team that, that you have to have a lot of interest in uh, is going to be the Phillies. And, and certainly, you know, they made all those offensive upgrades last year. They went out and did it again, you know, this year. They're, I mean, they're going to have even more firepower uh, in that infield now. Um, you know, I just think that going, going out and getting Zach Wheeler, what's that going to do to an, an, uh, Aaron Nola having a, a really strong secondary pitcher? I think a lot of their – what happens with them hinges on – you know, what they're able to get out of uh, Jake Arrieta, who's just not the same pitcher that he was before. But we know these guys can hit. Um, they, they had a little bit of a surge late in the season last year. and There was a point where it looked like maybe they were going to challenge for a wild card spot. Uh, you know, we know that their ownership is willing to put money in, and especially when things are going well, to go out and be aggressive. So I, I think the, uh, the Mets obviously have a lot of great pitching. I just don't think they have enough offensively. I have a lot of question marks after you know, after that, you know, the, the really the, the big pieces for them uh, outside of uh, Pete Alonso, what do they really have? So um, to me, it's, it's got to be the Phillies. It's just, do they have enough pitching to hold up that offense? Yeah, I could. Yeah, that's a very good point. They did add, and, you know, new management should be a good team this year. Another thing that's kind of been put on hold with this, with all sports being put on hold is this Astros scandal. You know, what are your takes on that? Punishments fitting, not fitting, what should be done? What do you think? I mean, you know, this is a it's it's a weird situation that Rob Manfred's in because, you know, I think as those of us who look outside of it and be like, okay, well, if they cheated, then there has to be some kind of of real punishment, whether that's, you know, returning postseason shares or whether you wanted to suspend guys. Obviously, the immunity that they were given for Manfred to to really get to the bottom of things uh, preempted the ability to do that. But one of the things that people just don't, in my estimation, talk about enough with this is. These aren't the days of like Kennesaw Mountain Landis in the in the Black Sox in a in a commissioner being appointed uh, by you know by an outside organization or or basically a judge uh, you know given being given powers uh, to rule over baseball. This is a guy who is in Manfred who is appointed by the owners and he works for the owners. So they have they have you know, bylaws in their constitution that says the most you can levy a team in terms of a fine is five million. Well, he did that and. Any punishment that would have been doled out to the players would have been met uh, by an avalanche of paperwork and appeals. And uh, he's kind of a powerless commissioner. And, and it's it's unfortunate that baseball has that. But when you have a guy who is basically working for ownership, um, I don't think you're ever going to see, you know, the really hard line uh, approach that a lot of us would want. And, and, you know, it looked like the players were going to have it in their hands. I'm certainly we saw, you know, guys getting beamed left and right in spring training. It'll be interesting to see how much this layoff and the appreciation that people are going to have for just baseball being back, how much, how much that kind of forced, uh, maybe has guys. All right. I was, you know, we were really going to stick it to the Astros, but um, there's a different feeling around the game because everyone's just so happy. It's back that maybe we need to get away from this <laughs> retaliation and vengeance approach. So I think, I think the, this layoff could have a really interesting impact on how teams are going to approach the Astros. Well, uh, thank you for coming on. Uh, I hope you and your family stay safe in this crazy time that is going on right now with uh, the coronavirus. Hope you all keep your quarantine, keep your distance, social distancing, new term everyone's having to learn. Uh, but it was a pleasure to have you on, and thank you so much. 
You got it, man. I heard, I heard a great joke a couple of weeks ago when this whole thing started that the guy said that his wife had been uh, had been practicing social distancing in their house for years. <laughs> yeah, now now everyone's got excuses. So thanks, guys. I appreciate yep. it. Yeah, thank, yeah, thank you. you. Go Braves. All right, guys. Well, you heard it here first, all from Corey McCartney. We want to give a big thanks to him for jumping on the show with us today. You know, the sports world is kind of empty right now, so it's good to get to hear from some people who live in that world some good first first-hand encounters on what the world's like. And you know, if you're interested in some of the stories he was sharing, make sure to check out his book. That's Tales from the Atlantic Braves Dugout. You can find it on Amazon. Great book, full of awesome Braves stories. So if you're a Braves fan, make sure you check it out. And if you're a supporter of us and the Couch Coaches, please make sure to go follow us on Twitter at Couch underscore show. Uh, this season is going to be a little bit more difficult for us because of the outlying situation. And if you want to hear us talk about anything on the episode, please let us know. We are more than willing to take questions or answer any topics you want us to discuss on. But uh, besides that, we will see you next episode. Thank